Um, on the front of your bulletin, this picture, which is quite colorful, it has two couples that uh, are involved or will be involved with us as a church. The one on the right, the couple on the right, of course, I think many of you know as Milton and Erica Pacheco. They are from Honduras, and they have served in Thailand for several years. They are currently back in Honduras to adopt a son who is standing there in front of them. And uh, the day that I was there, actually visiting with them, it was in the newspaper, the legal notice that they were adopting Lucas. And so they're quite excited. Yes, they're quite excited about that. Uh, They have um, wanted and attempted and been delayed and deferred and defeated in their attempt to adopt a child for a long time, and uh, they are now well on the path of becoming a parent of this child. And then the other couple on on your left is um, Alex and Christina Nunez, and their three sons, and I don't remember all their names. But uh, they are also from Honduras, and they also are making plans and preparations to go to Thailand to serve with the Pachecos there as missionaries to the Thai people. And um, they they are currently in the process, it's probably going to take them a while, they are hoping to come to the States sometime within the next couple of months and uh, spend some time trying to raise support from churches. Um, I was able to tell them that we as a church had already decided, our missions commission had already decided that we will support them as one of our missions couples. And uh, they are a very, very well-spoken and outstanding couple. And uh, Milton and um, Alex are both gifted musicians And so I I feel like uh, as a team together, the music will be something that will be part of their outreach there in Thailand. Um, These these couples both just radiate love, excitement, enthusiasm, not only for the Lord, but for their work in in Thailand. The Nunezes, um, the reason they haven't gotten here is because they are not getting a visa at this point. They have applied and tried and tried, and at this point, um, I don't know what the, I don't, what the reason is, but they're not able to, haven't been able to get a visa to come here, um, and so that's a matter for us to pray for them, but I was able to uh, have lunch with them and spend time a little bit also with Roger and Marilyn Reek, and this was in their home where I took this, where this picture was taken. Um, I had a wonderful week, I had a lot of experiences, some I can talk about and some I cannot talk about. Um, Some I can describe and some I probably shouldn't describe. I'll just say it that way. Um, I spent the majority of my week, again, as I did a couple years ago, uh, helping dentists extract teeth. I hate it. It's it's awful. But it's, it's such a joy to be able to feel as if somehow you are doing this unto the least. And the joy that comes from simply reaching out and helping some fellow human being that Jesus said on that day 
will really be revealed to be him. When the, when the people said, when did we do this? When did we do this to you? And he said, when you did it to these least, uh, that's when you did it to me. It's such a joy. But it's not fun for me personally. I'm not a medical person. I'm surrounded by doctors and nurses and, and pharmacists and so forth. And, you know, they, they speak this language that it's not theology. I don't know what it is. It's biology, I guess. And I don't know what they're talking about. So I just... I just throw a few Greek words in there once in a while, and they, they probably think that I learned that in med school, too. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the aspect of helping the dentist is just something that nobody wants to do, particularly, so I do it. And uh, sometimes I just hold a flashlight down in people's mouths because the lighting is not adequate for them to see. And... Um, Incidentally, our church paid for a dental bench with a setup uh, for the drill and uh, water pick and all this kind of stuff for Ruth um, Rivera, who has been with us once or twice, and she is a dentist. She had gone to Sierra Leone with the United Brethren work, had only been there less than a year, had to come back for circumstances that she had nothing whatsoever to do with. And she, she was there with us. I spent the week with Ruth. She was one of the three dentists that I helped. And she uh, <clears throat> is using this dental bench that we bought as a church. And um, I'm hoping we can uh, help out maybe with buying another one. Um, because one of the aspects of dentistry occurred to me as I saw this through in the week is that most of these are simply extractions. Um, they're not able to fill and do that kind of work, fill, to do fillings just because they don't, have the, they don't have the supplies and they don't have the time and they don't have enough dentists there to, to work with the people who need help right now. <clears throat> and, and so these are mostly just extractions. And it occurred to me that when these doctors or nurses prescribe medicine for someone's sore sore back or their stomach or something, they only usually give them like a 30-day supply. So a lot of times that might be all these people, uh, you know, their problem may be eased for a month or so, and then more likely it, it, it may come back. But when you pull somebody's abscess tooth, you have helped them for all the future. So I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe these dentists in their sort of neglected role, in the role that's not pleasant to do, Maybe they're actually helping people more of a bit long-term than, than what the doctors are. One of the dentists was <clears throat> sawing on a tooth and pulling like this, and I'm holding the flashlight, I'm kind of like this, and she goes, oh, cool, it's, the root is moving in down in the gum. Can you see that, David? I said, I can't see it, and I don't want to see it. <clears throat> oh, I don't, have, I don't have a picture in the computer I'd show you. There was one dude... Tall, skinny, tall, skinny guy. He was just a stick. And he sat down there, and our dentist goes, and he goes, boom. And this was outside on a concrete walkway, and the concrete had been poured by a blind guy with no trowel. I mean, I mean, it was just so rough it almost tripped you when you walked. And this guy just goes, right down on it. He just fainted right there. So we get to do all kinds of other things besides pull teeth <coughs> to bring people back from the edge. <laughs> I'll show you pictures in missions conference. 
We, uh, it was a very good week. We saw, um, I believe, it's around 1,200 patients. And, um, and, of course, many of these, as I said, are just short-term fixes. But uh, it's, it's fun. It's very frustrating. It's beautiful, deeply moving, and very joyful. Okay, um, I want to read for you a long passage of scripture from Isaiah 24. I may read more than that. But I, I would like for this Sunday and also next Sunday to discuss a little bit a word that, as I said at the piano, it describes our circumstances, it describes our conditions, and, and, in, and, and it does this in the Bible in numerous ways. And there's tragic notes to this word, but there also can be triumphant notes to this word. And the word is caught. We are caught as human beings. We're born into circumstances. We don't ask for, we don't set up, we don't prescribe. We just arrive. But we're caught in a dilemma. This morning, I want to look at the, the curse side of the dilemma a bit. Next week, I'd like to come back and look at some things in the New Testament that point out the other side of, the cur of, of that, and that is that we can be extricated from the curse when we're caught by Christ because the Scripture tells us that this is the reality. Um, Paul said to the church at Corinth, the love of Christ constrains me. It compels me. It doesn't mean it simply motivates me. It, it means uh, there's no other choice in my life. I'm caught by the love of God, by the love of Christ. I do things that I don't want to do. I can hold a, I can, you know, I can stand there and hold a light, and I can be like this. I don't have to see the blood, and I don't have to watch the stitches. But I can, I can still do this because the love of Christ has caught me and won't let me go, won't let me ignore a situation. So there's a, there's, there's, a tragic and there's a triumphant side to, to being caught. It just depends on who's caught you and where you're caught at. And uh, so I'll come back to this same word next week. But in the NIV in Isaiah 24, verse 18, it uses this word caught. And uh, the, the, the passage is wild. Um, when I read this, I feel like I've just read Ruth Carson's book, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. I don't know if you've any, any of you have read that. I'm sure some of you have. She wrote it, I think, back in the maybe late 60s or 70s when pesticides were starting to really come into the, the effects of pesticides from the 50s were starting to be manifested. And uh, she talked about, she was, a, she was a scientist, and she talked about the effects of pesticides on the bugs which are then eaten by the birds and the fish and all of those animals that eat the, the bugs that ha eat the pesticides are eaten by us. And she talks about the effects of all this on the uh, biosphere of our world. And she said, you know, in her, in her it's a very, it's a very um, pessimistic book. And she says at one point, sometime... In the future, because of all this junk that we're putting into the atmosphere, um, the world will be gray and uninviting and stark, and the winter will turn to spring, but there will be no robins to sing. It will be a silent spring. 
Um, just, you know, like something out of a Stephen King novel or something where there's just the, the foreboding and the terror and the gloom and the inescapability of some kind of horror. That's what Isaiah 24 and 25 and 26 read like. And um, it uses the word that we're caught, of course. So let me, let me read it. If you, don't, if you have a Bible, you, please follow along. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priests as for people. For master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. In other words, nobody's going to be left out of this judgment and this doom and this gloom. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth and its people must bear their guilt. The curse that I'm referring to is, the, of course, the curse that God uttered when Adam and Eve had sinned and he cursed the earth. And he, and, he, and he said, it's going to just be a nightmare for you just to get enough stuff to eat out of the earth. You're going to have to work like crazy. You're going to have to sweat. This we call the curse. But ultimately, to mankind, the curse, while not quite as direct as to the earth, he didn't use the word curse in Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 3. When you read it, the word curse is not there with mankind. It's there for the serpent, and it's there for the earth, but it's not there for mankind. However, what we call the curse regarding the relationship of God to us has to do with the separation, this, this condition in which we're born. Uh, we're not at the best and the brightest that we could be. We have issues, and I, I, I want to talk about that next week some, because in Romans 8 it says, the law is weakened by our sinful nature. The, the curse gets in there like arthritis, and it, and, it, and it just takes good, healthy tissue, and it makes it stiff and unable to respond like it could or should. And, and, and so our ability to even respond to God is weakened. There's a lot of interference. This is what we call the curse. Here, he's talking more about a future moment of great fury in which God's anger is going to boil right over the pot. I mean, all of us have put something on the stove, turned the burner on and forgot, got, you know, got happy doing something else, and all of a sudden we hear this, <laughs> or we smell something burning and it's boiling out over the stove. And um, <clears throat> Someday in the future, Isaiah sees a vision where he sees this as the 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 end result of where we're headed. Of course, the New Testament also echoes this when it says God's just going to get rid of the earth. He's going to vaporize it. It's going to be burned. And he'll make a new heaven and a new earth. He'll, he'll make a new earth and surround it with a new heaven. And that's our hope and our, and our joy. But here the word curse is, is, is just a, a, a reference to this future all-consuming fury. And however it plays out. Okay. The, um, 
verse 6, Therefore a curse consumes the earth, its people must bear their guilt. Before, therefore earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with song. The beer is bitter. They're ruined. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. I mean, this just goes on and on and on. Just kind of anything you can think of, he's just saying it isn't good. And if you think that's bad, wait till you hear it. Think about this side of it. In the streets they cry out. All their joys turn to gloom. All gaiety is banished from the earth. The city's left in ruins. Its gate is battered to pieces. So it will be on the earth and among the nations. As when an olive tree is beaten. You know what that means. You know, uh, some, I think, suppose still today, almonds or uh, olives, and I think olives, or I think almonds and olives and some other crops like that, to, you don't pick them by hand. You, you shake a tree. And they have, you know, I think out in California where they have the big, olive or almond groves they I mean they got they got a machine that'll just come by and kind of get a hold of a branch and just just shake a life out of that tree and of course that's what he's talking about uh as when an olive tree is beaten or when the gleanings are left after the grape harvest they raise their voices they shout for joy um this this thing when you read Isaiah 24 and 25 and 26 it just kind of rises and falls he sees Sometimes glimpses of hope where people are trying to serve the Lord or praise the Lord, but it don't seem to last long. And, and actually, later in chapter 25, uh, the reason that I think this is kind of a broad view of the far future, the final judgment, is he talks about in chapter 25 the fact that there's there not going to be any more death. It's going to reach a point where there, there's no point to punish. The punishment's all been meted out. Chapter 26, he talks about the resurrection. A point where the judgment has been followed by a new, a new state, a new condition. And this is really uh, very much like it's given to us in Revelation 6 in the New Testament. Where John says, you know, I saw this seal that was opened. And man, the generals and the, and the, the farmers and the housewives and the kids, they all just... They all ran for terror. They tried to find holes and caves to climb in. They called for the rocks and mountains to fall on to escape the wrath of him who sits on the throne. For the wrath was great. It's, it's just this kind of a picture. Um, way, off some, way off in the distance, maybe, maybe not for us, but Isaiah saw this vision of, of the curse coming ultimately to its fulfillment. Uh, let me just read some more. My heart falters. Oh, sorry, wrong page. Uh, verse 16. From the ends of the earth we hear singing, glory to the righteous one. But I said, I waste away, I waste away. Woe to me, the treacherous betray. With treachery, the treacherous betray. That's a very Hebrew phrase. It's a, it's a, it's a Hebraism. This is how they wrote poetry. They take a word and they just give the adjectival form and the verbal form and the nominal form and they just, they just grind around on the same word. With treachery, the treacherous betray and are treacherous. Um, it's just, he's, he's not sitting here writing a, a, a page of prose. He's, he's, emo he's emoting. The, the vision is just speaking to him and he just... In, in bursts of emotion and passion, 
he, he just kind of fires off what we call poetry. You know, poetry is just where the heart just says it. And you're not too worried about grammar. You're not worried about, I mean, we call poetry rhyming words. But to those people, rhyming had nothing, very little to do with it. It was more the parallel and the building up of phrases. And so he says, the treacherous betray, with treachery the treacherous betray. Terror in the pit and snare await you, O people of the earth. Whoever flees from the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. There's my word. The floodgates of the heavens are open. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is thoroughly shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. Heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it fails, that it falls never to rise again. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. That's kind of the, the idea of being caught. Somebody's in handcuffs or they're in foot cuffs and they're being, you know, taken, shuffled from here to there. They've, they've done been caught. And now they're facing whatever's ahead. They will be shut up in prison and punished after many days. The moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed. For the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. I'm going to stop there just because of time. Uh but you, you, see what I'm, you see what I'm saying, that the context of this thing is that uh, this is the culmination of God's curse. And it's horrible, and it's inescapable, and it's everywhere, and it affects everybody. And in chapter 25, as I said, he's, he's reaching the point where God takes away death because he's on to a new, he's in a new era. Um, and in chapter 26, he talks about how they... The bodies will rise from the earth and the dead will, will be brought back to life again. It's just phenomenal stuff, mind-boggling stuff. But um, that's how I see it. And the, the point that I'm uh, trying to get at here is that nobody will be able to escape. We're all born into this world. We're born into this consignment, into this... We're born into this uh, circumstance. And there's, there's, there's nothing any of us can do to change that. And if I could put it in a sentence of kind of what he's saying in chapter 24, that someday there will be not just dribbles and drabbles of judgment, someday there will be a final judgment of, of humanity, and it will involve the earth, our home the place that was made and given to us. And it will be furious and it will be forceful. This is, this is the, the burden of Isaiah 24. I have there in your sermon notes just some descriptions from there. I'm not going to spend time. You, you, we just read the chapter. And, and what I'm trying to say there in the little box is that we have bits and pieces of the curse. The Lord said uh, it's going to be hard for you, but even though it's hard, it's possible. Here we are. Yes, we do live by the sweat of our brow. Yes, we do have to struggle to get food and clothing and shelter. And we, have to, we have to work very hard for these things. We don't just sit here and they glide into our life. That's part of the curse. 
We have to work to attain things. But if we're willing to sweat, we can survive. That's our condition. But at some point, in some day, in the future, in what he's describing and what the book of Revelation seems to lay out for us, uh, it will get increasingly difficult. And at some point, nobody's going to escape the judgment of God. God's death sentence is upon all of us. And this now is the spiritual reality I'm talking about. The, the word death, thanatos, in the New Testament means separated, to be separated from. And that's what death is. When you die, your body and your spirit, they separate from each other. Your spirit goes on and your body does whatever. It's, it's done for a, for, a, for a long time. It's done. But there's a different kind of separation in the spiritual side of things. That we, from Adam and Eve on, are, are in this circumstance of being caught by a curse. And, the, and again, to emphasize my point, the, the reality of being caught is it is impossible to help myself. It is impossible to escape. If, if I can possibly wiggle or pry or, or cut or somehow get myself out of some circumstance, then I was never exactly caught. If I'm truly caught, I will not escape. That's the meaning of, of caught in, in all its different possibilities. So it seems to me what the Bible points out to us when the Lord says, look, you're going to die. In the day you eat, you will surely die. That the physical death that we all know is inevitable. And we see through our lifetime progressing more and more and getting closer. And we realize the forcefulness and the finality of the physical body, of the death of the, of the physical body. That's a symbol. That's all. I mean... It's, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's our condition. It's what we live with. None of us can escape it. I, I stop and think sometimes of some of the great illuminaries in the past. M amazing men and women. Some profoundly uh, smart. Some amazingly wealthy and powerful. Men and women have lived on this earth who uh, we would feel are, are leagues above and beyond us. And they're all dead if they've lived in the past. No matter how famous they were, no matter how powerful they were, no matter how rich they were, if they've lived very long in the past, they're just not here anymore. It's a symbol that there is an inevitability and a finality to this curse that catches us. And there is no escape from it. Ah, here's a Here's a beautiful gray fox, but he's caught, and now that he's in his cage, can you see that? Uh, he can't do what he wants to do. You know, this is not what the fox would like to be doing. He wants to be out here climbing and, and, and running and sticking his nose in every hole in the bank, and he, he wants to just be looking for rabbits or quail or whatever. He can. He, he's got a whole different agenda, but he can't do any of it. He's confined because he's caught. <clears throat> the physical is a symbol of the spiritual. 
And here is a quote from the New Testament that describes some of this in a different language. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Even before the law was given, sin was in the world. Though sin isn't taken into account when there is no law. In other words, it means a baby may do sinful things, but you don't smack them for it or you don't punish them for it because they don't know what they're doing. But it doesn't make what they're doing right. You know, if a baby uh, takes a plate and throws it on the floor off the table and breaks the plate, you don't punish them if they didn't understand that was wrong, but it doesn't bring the plate back. Just the fact that they sinned in innocence, they still sinned. And it still is a problem. Nevertheless, even though in times of innocence before the law, people had innocence. Nevertheless, look at this, death reigned. They still died, those people back there. Even if they didn't understand, this was before the Ten Commandments, and they didn't understand, have no other God before me, uh, don't murder, don't steal. Even if they didn't understand all that, they still died because the, the curse of sin had caught them. Whether they understood it or, or understood what their options were or not. Even from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, death was still happening. But he goes on to say in Romans 5, the gift is not like the trespass. And I love that word. I'll come back to it in a moment. If many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many sins and brought justification. So he's contrasting justification and condemnation. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned, that was Adam, and all his descendants now are caught in the wake of and the grip of his behavior and his disobedience, how much more will those who receive the gift of righteousness reign even through the one man, Jesus Christ? So he's He's comparing Adam to Jesus, and he's saying, boy, Adam brought everybody a lot of tragedy, but Jesus can bring everybody a lot of joy if you receive. You see that part in there? For those who receive, that's there. That's in the Bible. That's in the prescription of what to do in this condition which we're caught. Just as through the, just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So, uh, here is the New Testament reply to this bad news and this scene like uh, Isaiah in chapter 24 and this picture of such gloom that grips and, and awaits human, humanity. The New Testament says, uh, you know, philosophers, I don't say philosophers, pessimists, pessimistic people, I don't care who they are, maybe they're just atheists and they want to try to prove that they don't believe that there's a God, so they say, well, if there was a God, why don't he just forgive us all? Why don't he just say, well, you were bad, but I'm not going to do anything about it? Why doesn't God just uh, uh, take off the curse, just lift his, God? why don't God say, well, I'll tell you what, the curse isn't going to apply anymore. It's ridiculous. Uh, argument, but this gets said at times, and it has been used many times as an excuse for disobeying God or disbelieving God or whatever. What the scripture tells us is God will not reverse his curse, but he will release you from it. 
as an individual. He will not back off what he said to Adam and Eve. But if you receive Christ, you are released from that penalty. This, uh, oh, I haven't seen these for a while, so I don't know what's coming. This is something that maybe I just thought could be an analogy. Some of you fish, and we call this catch and release. You know, it, it always, as a non-fisherman, I, you know, I would enjoy fishing. I've just never done it, never really had time and fool with it. Someday, maybe. But I always just thought, wow, it seems kind of wild. This guy battled, the, you know, he spent all this money to go to this exotic location, and he battled, and he worked, and he, and he just, you know, had a, a long uh, challenge on his hand. He finally caught this fish, and he lifts him up out of the water and unhooks him and gently puts him back in the water. And it seems a little bizarre on the face of it. Of course, of course, the fisherman, the angler, is doing this for the challenge of the catch. He wants to catch that baby. He's having fun catching it. That's what it's all about to him. He wants to prove that he can catch. He doesn't want to kill the fish. He don't want to eat the fish. He's not interested that much in destroying the fish. Uh, he, he, just, he just wants to catch it. It's a challenge. God doesn't want to catch us. We're already caught. This is a difference. But he will still release us. It's no joy in God. There's no joy on God's part to catch us in the curse. In fact, he's not going to catch us in the curse. He already has caught us in the curse. That's what I'm saying. We're caught. But his joy is in releasing us which is often called uh, catch and release. He's not obligated to do this. And that's why it's said in the New Testament, we just read it, it's a gift. The gift is not like the trespass. This is God's gift to us, that he will release us from, as individuals, if we come to him and we meet his conditions, and we, we signify that we understand and we repent and we of the part that we have played. He will release us because of what Christ did. Um, I used to enjoy trapping. I haven't done any trapping for quite a while. Fred, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll uh, relate with me here. Years ago, I was, had some traps out for fox, catch fox. And uh, one morning, I caught uh, Catching, uh, checking my traps, caught a dog. It was a big old uh, hound dog. And uh, I, I just shook my head like, what is this dog doing here? This is no place a dog should be. It was way out, not near any civilized dog toting place. And uh, here was this dog. So I talked to him gently and, and was very friendly to him and so forth and, and just Took his foot out of the trap. He didn't try to harm me. If he did, I would have protected myself. But he was, he he knew he shouldn't have probably been there. I guess. Anyway, this is what I remember. I got his foot out of the trap. He wasn't hurt at all because dogs have big feet. They're bigger than fox feet, and and, and a, a leg hold trap, a spring loaded trap, is very likely not going to hurt a dog. Anyway, I I got him, let him go, and he. 
He took two or three, two or three steps away, and then he stopped. And he turned around, and he wagged his tail, and he, and he just had a moment where he was, he was happy, but he was scared. You know, he, he, something dramatic had, traumatic had just happened to him. But it, he was released from it. And, and, and he, he wagged his tail. It was almost like he wanted to come back. And then he went on a little ways. And then he stopped, wagged his tail a little bit. Until, I mean, he was, he, he was very much relieved to be out of the trap. But he was still, you know, kind of burned. And, and my point in saying this is, is this. Um, you may say to yourself, well, I guess David took that trap out of there and moved that trap away or whatever because he caught this dog. I did not. It was a very excellent condition or the very excellent place for catching a fox. In fact, I caught some other fox there later. I did not move my trap um, because this, this trap was placed and designed and targeted for something the fact that a non-target animal came wandering along and got in my trap, I didn't like it. I let it go. I was happy to release it. But I had the trap there for a purpose. And the dog never came back. I never caught that dog again because he learned his lesson that he, he, shouldn't, have, he shouldn't have been traipsing around there uh, at that place. I mean, it was just not a place that I would have ever thought I would have you know, would have had a dog. So, what I'm saying is, God cannot and will not change his curse, but he will release us from it, because Jesus already paid the price, the awful agony that Christ suffered for us, substituted for us being in that trap. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died. That's what he did. And that satisfied God in a, in a sense on our behalf. And so what, what Romans 5 is pointing out is that we individuals, not as, a, not as a unit, not as mankind, but we as individuals, you as an individual, can pass, as it says in, in the Gospel of John, from death unto life. You can become, you can be released from condemnation. And you can be justified. These are words that, it's, it's, that the New Testament uses. Your status before God is changed when you are unloosed. Um, and I'll close just with this, one, with this word. It always uh, interests me and it always uh, thrills me when I read in the New Testament, uh, one, of the new, one of the Greek words for turning loose or letting something go is luo, L-U-O. Uh, just a simple verb. It's used many times in the New Testament. One form of that has a prefix, apoluo. It means to, to be let loose off of something or let loose out of something. Well, what do you think translators do with apoluo when they find it? And they're translating from the Greek to the English it usually ends up looking like this. Forgive us. Forgiveness. Forgiveness, in this particular word, using the imagery of this word, is to be uncaught. That the curse, the confines, the condemnation, that I, I, I get out of it. You know, it's as if 
the trap just caught me by the coat and somehow I was able to slip out of that coat and just move away from it. But it's really because of Christ and we understand that. But this is partly, this is one of the images of what it means to be forgiven. I'm caught, but not, I used to be caught. But Christ took me out. He, he extricated me from that trap like I did that dog. I'm free. I'm free as I ever was. In my relationship with God, I am free because of the forgiveness of Christ. Um, but, of course, he expects us to, to do something and to live with this. I want to sing to close our, song, our service, a charge to keep I have. I have a charge to keep. I have a responsibility to fulfill. I've been released from the trap, so God doesn't want to see me back here with, you know, caught in this trap again. Uh, he wants to see something different for my future. That can be the story of life for you, for any and all of us. And if today, even just as we sat here this morning, this has made sense in a way maybe that it hasn't for you before, and, you've know, and you know that you've never really in your heart um, prayed and asked God to unloose you from your condition of being caught in sin, then I encourage you to do that this morning. Heavenly Father, we sing a song, uh, but it's more than a song. We sing these words, but it's really a prayer. It's, it's, a, it's a conviction that we have that you have offered to do something inestimable for us, incredible for us, to release us from the trap, from the curse, even though physically we must continue on this symbolic act. Spiritually, we're not dying. We're living. And our life and its quality is increasing all the way unto eternal life. It's not diminishing. It's heading the other way. Even though our body's heading down, our spiritual life is heading up in a stronger, strong trajectory. It's an incredible thing. It's a marvelous thing. It's not just that you want to, or not just that you will loosen us from some embarrassing, scandalous thing, but it's that you loosen us from your own curse. And we, today, we receive that gift in Jesus' name.